So Claude Monet is one of the founders of Impressionist art. Impressionism is a style where the artist, the painter, captures an image of an object as if they just caught a glimpse of it. So kind of out of the corner of your eye. And so Impressionism is normally pictures that are painted with a lot of color and uh, they're typically bright and very vibrant. And so with that in mind, uh, look at the next slide. On the left is a picture of Monet's before he had cataracts. And on the right, the darker one, he painted while he suffered from cataracts. And even though the graphics aren't that great a quality, the contrast in the two images is really stark. And it's due to his cataracts. Uh, typically, cataracts makes things appear dark and muddied. So Monet's signature vibrant and bright colors are now muted and replaced by browns and yellows. And back in Monet's day, uh, cataract surgery carried with it great risk. Today, it's one of the safest and most effective surgical procedures, but back then it didn't always work. They did surgery at one eye at a time, and one of Monet's peers, Mary Cassette, she was also a famous artist who had cataracts, um, she had unsuccessful surgery on both eyes, which ended her art career and made her go blind. So Monet was terrified by Cassette's experience, and he put off surgery. Uh, and then finally, years later, he decided to have a, a, a surgery done on one of his eyes, and it was successful. So his art began to resemble the way that it used to, it had those bright, vibrant colors again. And you might be thinking, Ben, why are, or why are you talking about paintings and painters? Uh, it's because this little piece of history deals with how we see and how what we see matters. And that's exactly what our passage today is talking about, how we see and how what we see matters. And what we see matters because we all do what makes sense to us. But the way that we reach that conclusion, oh, this makes sense to me, therefore I'll do it, is based on what we see, based on what we perceive. But sometimes, like in Monet's case with cataracts, what we see isn't what's really there. If Monet pictured a, a, a pond, a blue pond with green lilies as a brown pond with dark yellow lilies, what he was seeing wasn't really what was there. And so what we see matters. And Monet did what made sense to him. He painted what he saw. We all do what makes sense to us. Monet didn't have the surgery because it didn't make sense to him. Then he had the surgery because it made enough sense to him to have the surgery. And so how we see affects how we evaluate pain. The pain of staying the same. The pain of living with cataracts versus the pain of changing. The pain of potentially being healed or going blind in Monet's case. Monet did what made sense to him. We all do what makes sense to us. So here's the problem. If we don't see clearly, then what makes sense to us, it really doesn't make sense. It's very vital that we see clearly because then what makes sense to us actually makes sense. And that's what's happening in the church at Corinth while Paul wrote the letter that we refer to as 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. Spiritually, spiritually, there were people in this church who weren't seeing clearly. Specifically, what they weren't seeing clearly was that 
there were these new teachers that came in that both looked and sounded better than Paul looked and sounded. And so if they looked and sounded better than Paul, then some people in the church were tempted to reach the conclusion that they were in fact better than Paul. And if they were in fact better than Paul, it would make sense that we'd follow them rather than following Paul. We'd rather become like these new guys rather than become like Paul. It made sense to them. And so they were starting to move that direction. But it really didn't make sense because the super apostles, these new teachers, were leading, they were attempting to lead this church away from Christ. So while Paul did everything that he did in order to lead them towards Christ, it it wasn't impressive enough uh, for some people in the Corinthian church. So Paul is responding in, in the passage we'll read today, Paul is responding to the way that some of the Corinthians perceived him. And the passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. So you can follow along on the screen, but uh, I won't have all the verses on the screen later as we go back and reference, as, uh, reference this passage as I make uh, the four points we're going to see today. So we're going to see how Paul responds to the way that some of the Corinthians perceived him, the the way that they saw him. And we're going to see that what we see really matters and how we see. So beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Now I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I'm present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some, some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying arguments and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking Every, co- every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, that he belongs to Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he belongs to Christ, so also do we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. So our passage today is talking about how we see and how what we see matters. If we don't see clearly, we're going to keep doing things that make sense to us, but they're not going to make sense. And Jesus talked about this In Matthew 6, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
Jesus said, if the light that's in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's like if I was blind and all the blinds or curtains were covering the windows and the lights were off in this room and I said, oh, it's so nice and bright in here. You're like, no, it's not. Just because I think it's bright in here doesn't mean it's bright in here. How we see determines how we live. If the eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Jesus is saying how we see things determines how we live. In order to live well, you have to see well. So that's, that's connected to our passage today because the light within the super apostles, within these guys who were questioning and trying to undermine Paul's leadership, the light within them was darkness. Verse 10, when it says they say, I'm, I'm convinced that the they refers to the super apostles because this whole letter, they're trying to undermine Paul's leadership, undermine his authority, kind of snatch this church away from his followership and away from Christ. They say his, wetter, his letters are weighty and strong. It's like, we'll give Paul the fact that he writes good letters, but when you meet him in person, there's so much left to be desired, right? Right? His, his presence is unimpressive. His speech contemptible. They're saying, guys, he's not really imp- as impressive as he sounds. He's beneath us. And if, if he's beneath us, and if you're with us, he's beneath you too. Leave Paul, ditch Paul, follow us. But Paul responds to this false perception of who he is by saying in verse 7, you guys are looking at things only as they appear. You guys are looking at them outwardly. And so there are four aspects from this passage uh, of good eyes. When I say good eyes today, I mean good spiritual eyes, not 20-20 physical vision, but good spiritual eyes. Because Jesus said, if the eye is good, the whole body will be full of light. So how can we look at things as they really are and not just as they appear? How can we look at things as they are inwardly and not just outwardly? And the first aspect of good eyes is that God's power is not always obvious. I mean, we see this in the case that they were even asking this question about Paul's leadership, that they were even considering following anyone else than the guy who planted this church and raised up leaders in order that he could go and be faithful to God's call and God's mission on his life elsewhere. God's power is not always obvious when we look only at the outside, but good eyes can still see God's power. As, as I was thinking about this passage, I was remembering uh, in my own personal reading of the Bible, I've been reading through the Exodus account. And if you're not familiar with the Exodus account, it's where God rescues his people out of Egyptian slavery in an awesome way. Ten plagues, the Passover was the last plague, and then he parted the Red Sea so that his people could go through on dry ground. But when the Egyptian army pursued, he closed the Red Sea and they all died. It's, a, it's an awesome story of God's power. But at the beginning of Exodus... God's power was not obvious. His people 
had been in slavery for 400 years. That's weakness. The prayers of God's suffering people were being heard by him, but to the people, they just felt weakness. The weakness of a mother who couldn't keep her three-month-old baby boy safe, so she sent him down the river. Hope that he would live somewhere else. That's weakness. The weakness of that baby boy growing up in Pharaoh's palace and then trying to create justice for his people when he saw that they were being beaten, he tried to create justice on his own by killing the Egyptian who was beating the Hebrew slave. That's weakness. And so he fled in weakness. And God met him in the wilderness, told him, Moses, go back and rescue my people out of slavery. I'll promise to be with you. And Moses' reply showed his weakness. I can't talk. What if they don't believe me? God, just send somebody else. And I just want to remind you of that story to say that until you learn, until I learn, until we learn to trust God through weakness, you'll not really understand his power. Not personally, not experientially, as God intends you to. Until you choose to look and to trust beyond what you can see, you're not going to understand God's power. Good spiritual eyes see that just because God's power isn't obvious to you right now doesn't mean that he's not at work. Doesn't mean that he's not available to you. And so an application of this point is trust God more than you trust yourself. And I'm not advocating a blind faith where you just close your physical eyes and go off and do your thing and trust in God. No. But we don't know how, if, if you don't know, for example, how to make disciples, don't shut down and say, well, I can't make disciples. Say, well, I don't know. It's not obvious to me, but I'll press forward and I'll trust that God will make it clear enough. We have to trust God more than we trust ourselves. And because God's power is not always obvious, Paul actually has to help the Corinthians take another look at this whole situation that they're assessing, that they're judging. And so the second aspect of having good spiritual eyes is that good eyes know the value of a second look, and they know how to offer that second look to another person. Look at verse 7 again. Paul says, You're looking at things as they are outwardly, He says, if anyone is confident that he is Christ's, that he belongs to Jesus, let him consider this again. So let him take a second look within himself. That just as he is Christ, so also are we. And so Paul addresses this lie that the church is invited to believe. Oh, Paul's not impressive. He just talks a big game in his letters by saying, look again. I've acted this way for a reason. I've been using my authority, Paul says, to build you up. He says that in verse 8, and not to tear you down. And then the way that Paul helps them take this second look is by gently urging them towards obedience. Paul says in verse 1, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then he says in verse 6, that we're ready to punish all disobedience, whenever your obedience is complete. So 
good spiritual eyes. They know how to take a second look, but they also know how to help someone else take a second look in their own life. It's by gently urging them towards obedience. That's what Paul is doing in this passage. And if you think about even that phrase, think about those words, gently urging. They don't normally sound like they go together. To urge is to press or push or persuade someone, but to be gentle is to be soft and caring and and delicate with someone. And any time that you relate to someone in gentle urging, it doesn't appear powerful, it doesn't sound powerful, but I don't believe there's anything more powerful than gentle urging. And so I'll share a personal story. Uh, Recently, a friend of mine saw something in my life, a shortcoming, and he let me know about it privately and gently, but he also let me know Like, this is what I see. This is what I believe. And there was an appeal for me to act. He was urging me. But it was a gentle urging. And it was effective. I did what he said because trust had been developed. And after that correction, I didn't leave feeling corrected. I felt loved, not corrected. And so out of Paul's relationship with the Corinthians, he's doing the same thing. He's gently urging them towards obedience. And that's the way that people respond best. We all best respond to gentle urging. That's the way that God relates with us primarily. Especially if we're walking faithfully with him. So in application, we need to be responding to God's gentle urges towards obedience so that there doesn't have to be a throwdown later like Paul threatens in this passage. And we need to gently urge others towards obedience. And you might think, well, how, what does that even mean? How do I gently urge others? Serve them. Initiate with them. Be kind to them. And keep doing that. Don't just do it once and say, well, I tried. But keep doing it. Let that be your default pattern of relating to people. Because if you start demanding and taking from people or waiting for people to initiate with you or if you start being quick to correct others, that's a good way to not make good friends and to not keep good friends. If my friend, when we first, the friend who corrected me, if he, if he first started trying to be my friend that way or if he was always correcting me, we would not have the friendship that we do it would not have been an effective correction. But good spiritual eyes can see that. They know how to reconsider things for themselves and also how to help other people take a second look. It's gentle urging. And God's power, because it's not always obvious and because we often have to take a second look, uh, Paul urges the Corinthians to look at unseen things. He urges them to look at spiritual warfare. The fact that we're in a war and good spiritual eyes can see that. So rather than first looking at the way that things appear to us, good spiritual eyes engage the war that's happening within each one of us. And you can see on this this slide in the red, those are all of the phrases and words 
that are war images, war language. And Paul is essentially saying, yeah, we walk in the flesh. We're not disembodied spirits. We walk inside of human bodies. But we're a lot more than that. And that's not our primary battle. The battle that we're fighting, you can't see. It's a spiritual battle. And so the weapons that we use are spiritual. And they're powerful. He says they're powerful enough to take down fortresses. And it helps me to think of that as like a castle. That's what that word means. It's, it's, a, it's a strong building. Just think of like a castle coming down. That's the type of weapons that are available to us in Christ. So large, powerful, strong problems in your life. Depression, pride, insecurity. I'm not saying those castles are going to come down like that. But I'm saying that according to this passage... We have powerful weapons at our disposal. So there's no need to act like we're helpless. And how do we use these weapons? Look at what Paul says. They're being destroyed by weapons that destroy thoughts. Arguments against God. Paul says we take every thought captive. So it starts on the inside, not on the outside. And so to apply this very practically, what does victory even mean in the Christian life? Is that clear to you when people talk about living victoriously? I think it's clear from this passage that victory means taking every thought captive. Victory means engaging the mind. And so let's, let's walk through a very specific example that even if you don't think this applies to you, I'm guessing it really does <laughs> more than you might think at first glances. I feel like a failure. I'm messed up. I feel like I'm not valuable because of what I've done. Well, victory would look like taking that feeling, taking that thought captive and turning it, toward, turning it into obedience to Jesus. And that would look like this. This is what's true. I'm loved by God. God sent his son to die on the cross for me. My mistakes are paid for because of his sacrifice in my place. I can't do anything to make him love me any more or any less. My sin is covered. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I know that I struggle with this but I can live in freedom. That's what victory can look like. But it has to be a consistent engagement of taking thoughts captive, rustling them down and putting them away, one after another. And here's another way that we can pursue victory, is using spiritual disciplines like scripture memory. If we want to use weapons, we got to be familiar with them. So, Get familiar with the Bible. Memorize portions of scripture. Fast. Practice regular confession with a friend and repentance. Don't just tell your close friends your sins, but repent with each other. Make plans to eliminate that. Jesus says if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. 
Engage the spiritual battle with intensity because your life really does depend on it. Christ is our life. We don't just get saved to go to heaven. We get saved to be with Jesus now and forever. But it starts now. Eternal life is knowing God now. So we have the weapons to win. And I'm not saying that you can or should be perfect. But I am saying that God's expectation and that God's desire for us is that we would grow. And obedience starts within how we think, how we feel. Disobedience also starts from within. That's where the spiritual battle is raging. It's within us. And so, kind of zooming back out into the context, Paul is saying, you might not be impressed with my outsides because you're looking at things as they are outwardly, but my insides are worth uh, imitating. My insides are worth imitating because I'm becoming like Christ. And Paul was not a perfect man. So we can say that too, if it's true. My insides are worth imitating. So can you say that? And I'm not talking about perfection, I'm talking about direction. So the fourth aspect of good spiritual eyes is that good eyes recognize that what we see has consequences. There are consequences to what we see because we do what makes sense to us and there's consequences for what we do. We all know that. And Paul is trying to help them to reconsider, to take this second look because they can't see God's power all the time. It's not always obvious. He's trying to help them reconsider before it's too late. So listen to all the warnings of consequences if the Corinthians don't change their perspective. He says in verse 11, let such a person who thinks about us as writing strong letters but being really weak and impotent in person, let such a person consider this. What we are in word when we're absent will be indeed when present. Power's coming. Judgment's coming. That's, that's what Paul's communicating. And in verse 6, he says, we're ready to punish all disobedience. And then in verse 2, he says, I ask, I don't, I, he's saying, I ask that when I'm present, I don't have to be bold with the confidence with which I propose. I'm ready to be courageous against some who just look at us according to the flesh. So if you can't pick up uh, the message from those verses, follow this illustration. When I was a kid, and when I got in trouble, I mean like big trouble uh, as a kid, I knew I was in big trouble when my mom would stop correcting me herself and just say, wait till your dad gets home. He'll deal with you then. That's what's happening in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. Paul's saying, if we appear weak to you because we're being gentle in our urging, just wait till we come in person. Just wait. Judgment's coming. We'll back up our powerful words and letters with real power, and we don't want to have to do that. You see, what we see matters. The reason that they were about to get in trouble 
is because what they saw was wrong. And they were doing what made sense to them, but it didn't make sense. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We all do what makes sense to us. We only will change our behavior when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing. And how you see which is greater will determine which direction you head. How you see will determine how you live. That's what Jesus meant when he said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So, we must consistently readjust our eyes to see the world as it really is. We must consistently make sure that we're not developing spiritual cataracts to where we're painting dark images because that's the way we think it really is. And how do we do that? I believe it's by looking to Jesus and continue Keep looking to Jesus. He is the light of the world. And he said that in John 8. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's not easy to do, but it's possible. Even in Jesus' day, God's when Jesus walked the earth, God's power was not obvious. Despite the miracles, the prophecies fulfilled, the powerful teaching the Messiah was killed. God's power was not always obvious, but the resurrection of Jesus and the evidence for it should make us all reconsider. We should all take a second look at who Jesus is. Who is this man? That's the center of the spiritual war. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And how we answer it affects our whole lives. It affects every part of us. It affects how we see ourselves, how we see the world around us. And there's a judgment coming. And at that time, we will all give an account, give an account to Christ for what we did. And whatever we did or whatever we didn't do, we did it because it made sense to us at the time. Not that it always made real sense or true sense, but it made sense to us. And here's the good news. We can live lives right now that increasingly make real sense as we look to Jesus, the light of the world. We don't have to wait until the end to know what really did or does make sense. We can know our purpose right now in the world because we know him, we know Jesus. Living in relationship with him is our purpose. And that's possible because of what he's done for us on the cross and the fact that he's still alive. He is no longer dead. He's alive. In him, all your imperfections are covered and you can find all the light that you need to see the world as it really is. So that when you do what makes sense to you, it really will make sense. So let's pray together.